This is a Federal News Network podcast. One of the biggest unanswered questions about the Pentagon's joint warfighter cloud capability contract has been this. Will vendors be able to compete for work on a project-by-project basis? And the answer is yes, but with a caveat. DOD does plan to conduct task order competitions for each new cloud requirement, but vendors won't be able to submit bids. Instead, the department will use a new technology tool called AT-AT to pick winners based on what it already knows about each company's capabilities and prices. If that sounds unusual, it is. In an exclusive interview with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu, Danielle Metz, the Deputy DOD CIO for Information Enterprise, explained how it will work. Ms. Metz, thank you very much for doing this. And I, I want to spend most of our time today talking about how the JWCC contract is actually going to work once awards are actually made. But let's let's start with some big picture stuff, because the, the department has published quite a, or had published quite a bit of documentation on JEDI, relatively little so far on JWCC. I think there's really only five pages out there at this point. So start us off, if you would, by talking a bit about how the department's views of enterprise cloud, its requirements for enterprise cloud, its understanding of the market has changed over these last three years. Yeah, absolutely. So I think with Jedi, what you saw was the department's need to have an enterprise uh, cloud infrastructure contract in place. And we wanted to be able to partner with one vendor and have one cloud so that we could become, the department could become more cloud conversant, not only on the acquisition, contracting, identification of dollars for services, but also the technical and operational processes as well. Uh, And that was really the overarching strategy, the strategic thinking and going about JEDI with one cloud, um, one vendor approach. And I think the other thing too was um, back in 2017 when we envisioned JEDI, uh, the cloud service providers weren't as technically savvy as they are today in terms of data portability. And so the ability to move from different types of clouds. So it really constrained the department's ability to entertain multiple clouds um, with the services that we were wanting to achieve from unclassified all the way to top secret and extending that out to the tactical edge. And so there was a lot of uh, advocacy that we needed to do a JEDI. So I think that was really what you were seeing in the literature and documentation that was being published as we were describing the need for JEDI. I think that's very well established now. I think uh, how Jedi came to an end is also very well established in terms of the litigation. And also, what's also very um, well established is that the department still has an urgent unmet need um, for cloud services infrastructure um, from unclassified to top secret, uh, cross-domain solutions so you can move data through those uh, echelons and then to the tactical edge. That is still on record. We still don't have it. And with Secretary Austin and Secretary Hicks stating joint all domain C2 and AI and data acceleration, those key components require the need for the department to have cloud infrastructure and services. So with JWCC or the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability, this is really tackling um, that urgent unmet need in a very quick manner. Uh, And the way that we chose to go about that is an acquisition strategy that would do direct solicitations and limiting those direct solicitations to the five U.S.-based hyperscale uh, cloud service providers. So we weren't going to do a full and open competition, which is what we did with JEDI, uh, but the department is committed to doing full and open competition. And as part of our overarching cloud strategy approach, once we have the JWCC uh, contract awards, 
uh, a year from that, we would uh, embark on our open market research, and it would not uh, exclude the CSPs. It would be for any company that can meet the department's requirements. And so that, in effect, it would create the department's cloud marketplace commiserate to what the IC has with their C2E. So JWCC is in some ways a bridge to whatever you're going to do a year later. That's correct. And so JWCC is really uh, the way that we have the the contract established or will have established is a three-year base with two one-year option years. And the reason why we wanted to be able to have three years is because it, we knew it was going to um, take uh, a while for us to be able to onboard uh, the combat commands and military services and defense agencies and build activities to start uh, using the JWCC, going through the automating uh, provisioning tool, which we call at at to be able to initiate um, task orders. And the idea of JWCC is once we have contract awards, there are individual awards to, um, to those uh, CSPs that receive those awards. And so those task orders are competed each and every time. And the mission owner's requirements drive how the task order is going to be initiated. And then the competition takes place at the task order level. All right, let's dig into that a little bit because I'm, I'm a bit confused on that's how that's going to work. My understanding from the pre-solicitation notice back in the summer was that the intent was to award separate IDIQs to each vendor, which is not the traditional way you would do it if you were going to do competition at the task order level. So you're saying each time the department or a military service has a requirement for cloud services, it will be competed across all of those four IDIQs? So it is. The JWCC is, you have it right, an IDIQ. And then we will have individual contracts with the CSSPs. And the competition takes place at the task order level. And this is exactly what the C2E is uh, achieving with how they're going to do their execution of task orders as well. The difference for uh, for the department and what we're working right now on is typically something like that takes 30 to 45 days. That is unsatisfactory. And we are working very creatively within the bounds of FAR and DFAR to be able to make that into five to 10 days. And so that's the active work that's taking place now. The JWCC Program Management Office, uh, which is DISA's uh, hosting and uh, compute center, also known as the HACK, partnered with uh, WHSAD and the acquisition lawyers are working through how we're going to be able to, to execute those task orders through the automated um, provisioning tool of AT-AT and to be able to execute those task orders within days instead of the typical 30 to 45 days. That's very interesting. I, I, I just want to go back one beat and make sure that you didn't misspeak when you said one contract. There are there are actually four different IDIQ contracts That's issued correct. to each so company. You, okay. that, is, that is correct. Okay. I know a lot of this is probably still TBD, but can you say anything more about how that rapid competition process would actually work? I mean, does a company, is a company required to submit a proposal every time there's a new requirement? No. So the, to take a step back, as you know, we did direct solicitations to the four CSPs back in November 19th. And so right now they're the ones that are providing their proposals to the request for proposal and PWS that we submitted as part of our acquisition package that went to them. Uh, They will be sending their proposals to the government uh, in the next uh, month or so. And based on the government's um, assessment of those proposals and engagements with uh, the vendors, the government will make the determination as to which 
would receive the direct contract award. So these are individual source, sole source, um, but it's not one. It's right. right now many. Most four could be less than. And so once those contracts are awarded, that's the IDIQ. And then based on that is the catalogs that will be created and then the purchasing um, or uh, the task order execution through that automating provisioning tool. Okay. So there, so the sense in which it's a competition is, tell me if I'm making too much of a logical leap here, all of the company's prices and capabilities are sort of pre-populated into this DISA is, system. And then it's almost an automated competition where the government determines which com- company or combination of companies capabilities are going to suit the requirement. Is that something about right as far as how this is going to look? Yeah, that's correct. And I think the only um, nuance that I'll stress is it's the mission owners requirements that would determine how that task order is going to be competed and then how it's going to be satisfied by the companies that are on that, um, on the contract. Got it. So just to be super clear at the task order level, when those competitions happen, there's, there's no more interaction with the vendor where they get to come in and make an argument about how, why we think our service offering is going to do the job better here, just because that would take a lot of time. That's correct. So that's, that's the way, that's the vision of how we want to be able to execute this. Are, are, are you aware of any other government procurement that's actually worked that way with those kinds of task order competitions? Or is this, uh, are you, are you innovating here? This is very, uh, this is very revolutionary. Um, and I think that this shows the commitment to the department in terms of wanting to transform our business processes so that we can get the effect of um, capabilities quicker to our warfighter. Let's let's talk about how you're going to ensure fair and reasonable prices over the life of the contract. If, if it, let's say you ex- exercise all your options and the thing goes out for three years. Are the prices that are set in these direct awards relatively static? How do you make sure that the prices DOD pays are, you know, commensurate with the commercial marketplace over time? Yeah, so that's part of the the requirements that are within uh, the, the PWS is that we want to have commercial parity and that the inspiration of having task orders being competed at the task order level is to inspire that uh, that competition. In terms of the specifics for the pricing, um, those are going to be negotiated within the, the terms of the FAR. And anything further than that is going to be really difficult for me to get into with the specifics just sure. because of where we are in the process. Yeah, that makes sense. Um I want to get a little bit more clarity on what happens after this during these option periods. So it's one year after the contract awards. You may do a competition or you definitely will do a competition at that point. We will. So one year from the JWCC contract being awarded, we would initiate our market research for a fair and open competition to establish a DOD marketplace. And unlike what we did in JWCC, we would not exclude it to just be the U.S.-based CSPs. The four vendors who will have played up to that point are going to have a pretty serious incumbent advantage at that point, will they not? I mean, how are you thinking ahead at this point about how you make sure that really is a fair and open competition? And realistically, what other companies and kinds of capabilities beyond the hyperscale CSPs would become part of JWCC? Are they other ancillary services or integration services? What's What's the long-term vision there? Yeah, so I think you know that um, the department has uh, at least 13 what I'll call enterprise cloud uh, contracts, and they're all through uh, integrators. And so those, we have them today. So the Air Force has Cloud One, uh, the Navy has their own contract, Army just stood up theirs. Um, so those will continue to, to go forward. And that 
body of work, um, the lessons learned from that, the cloud conversancy and cloud fluency that's coming from those current contracts will continue and then be folded into um, JWCC if the services deem that you know the JWCC meets uh, their requirements. We're not mandating JWCC. This is really for the combatant commands and the, um, the, the DAFAs first. And then for those uh, military services who have current cloud contracts that may not have an aisle six or secret, a top secret or a tactical edge, they can use JWCC because we will have those services. So I think that also it would be kind of short-sighted for me to say that there's not going to be another company out there that can meet the requirements of, uh, of the department. Because right now, um, so much can change within a year or two years from when we start the, the open uh, the, the market research. Um, and that's what we want to be able to do. We want to be able to preserve that trade space um, for that innovation and not try to preclude um, anything. And I think, but really what we wanted for JWCC uh, was twofold. And you were correct in saying it, it is serving as a bridge. We know we have an urgent unmet need. We know we need to have capabilities out to the forces. Uh, we know we don't have that. And we know that we are well behind the power curve. So how do we go about making sure that we have capability at the, the speed and alacrity that we need that was the vision of, of JWCC and the strategy that we have. Recognizing extreme long-term the, the importance of once we have that cloud fluency um, from acquisition, funding, um, the technical um, expertise as well, how are we gonna operate this? How are we gonna be able to really leverage and harness the cloud compute, the data, be able to do the machine learning, the artificial intelligence, all the things that we talk about, but how do that practical application We'll be so much further along that we will be able to have a true cloud marketplace that will be able to tailor and meet all of the different mission needs for the department. The, the idea of starting to deliver services to combatant commands and defense agencies and field activities first, I, I, I don't think I had heard that before. And that, that also seems like that's a change from the JEDI approach that, that y'all originally had a few years ago. Can you can you talk a bit more about why those are the priority? Is that just where the unmet need is the largest at the moment? That is true. It is the where the unmet need is right now. Um, even with Jedi, as part of our early adopters, uh, they were just about all combat commands. We had a, a couple of services, and we also had a, a couple of, of DAFAs. So I think from when we came up with Jedi, when we had Jedi awarded, we were about to go on our go-live date back in February 2019, we had 12 early adopters. It was a good mix. Since that point on, uh, the landscape has changed. You know, Air Force went forward with Cloud One, um, so they have shored up a lot of their um, discrete cloud efforts within the Air Force or the Department of Air Force, and now they have an enterprise contract of Cloud One. The Navy is doing the same for theirs, uh, really the Department of Navy, um, and the Army is as well. And what we don't have are the combat commands to have access ubiquitous access to, to cloud, um, the cloud infrastructure and the associated services, and so too, nor do the DAFAs. And so that's the reason why it's really what we're targeting first. And then opening the door and allowing for the services when they have their unmet needs, many don't have a tactical edge or uh, aisle six or a top secret, they'll be able to use JWCC. But I think we really need to be able to focus in, and so it's the combat commands you think about joining all the main C2 that's really going after the combatant commands. You think about what we're trying to do with AI and data acceleration, really targeting the combatant commands. Um, so we know we have critical infrastructure um, shortfalls and, and cloud compute and the associated infrastructure is a big one that we need to fill for the, uh, for the combatant commands. 
as you mentioned earlier, when the Jedi procurement was still ongoing, there was a view, probably correct view, that that stitching together multiple CSPs into a coherent ecosystem was just going to be too hard. Um, any more you can say about why the department thinks that's changed at this point? And 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 where I where I want to get to with this question is 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 it a clear objective with JWCC to have one thing that is a department wide enterprise cloud? Or is it really four different service offerings kind of doing their own thing and serving different needs? Yeah, so the way I look at it is that the JWCC is acting as that enterprise cloud uh, contract uh, construct so that once we have these awarded, it is open to the entire enterprise. All DoD components are able to leverage and use and to purchase and execute task orders against. That's not true for many of our other enterprise cloud contracts. They're either tailored to... Um, that specific organization, or is that the contracting officer's purview to allow um, by exception? And so that, to me, is honoring what we were trying to do with JEDI in terms of establishing something that everyone in the department would be able to use. Uh, the difference is just because of how uh, we evolve and mature, we didn't have much of a cloud presence um, uh, when we conceived JEDI. Uh, we had pockets of it, but we didn't have the robustness that we, we see now in, in 2020 to 2021. Um, and so I think that's the reason why we don't need to mandate um, JWCC, but there was a need to mandate JEDI back in the day. So you could just see how we are um, being very respectful of the fact of what the current landscape is and where the needs are and ensuring that we're um, we're targeting those needs and meeting those needs, but allowing it to be accessible um, to all DoD components, which I think is incredibly important. Given that that's the case and the military departments are going to be free to continue to use their own contracts for a while, it, is it a fair assumption that the total contract value for this is going to be probably substantially less than what was envisioned under JEDI? I don't know if you all have numerical estimates that you can share at this point. So I think it's out uh, uh, in public because it went out with a solicitation, but it's a, a $9 billion um, contract ceiling. Um, and so that accounts for um, all the services and infrastructure associated uh, with UNCLOS to um, Top Secret, the tactical edge, um, and accounts for the ability to have multiple offers. And so that's what we're looking for right now. That's the, the projection that we've uh, estimated also want to take a, a little bit of a step back and, and talk about, um, to the extent you can, how you landed on four vendors here. It wasn't that long ago. It was just back in the summer where the department felt relatively strongly that there were only two companies that were going to be able to perform on this contract. I know you can't talk about individual companies' capabilities. I wouldn't expect you to. But can you say anything about what happened during that market research process that led you to expand the horizons a bit here? Yeah, and I think that's the reason why it was so important in our pre-solicitation. We said based on our current market research, we could see two uh, that met our, our requirements, but we were uh, we knew that we needed to conduct extensive market research and do uh, individual engagements with all five uh, U.S.-based hyperscale uh, CSPs, and that's exactly what we did. Uh, the team engaged multiple rounds, um, had some fulsome conversations, reviewed capabilities, timelines, um, and based on that body of work, that drove to the recommendation and then eventually uh, the decision to do the direct solicitations to the four. Um, so that's why it was so critical to do the market research. 
Um, we wanted to take the time to be able to do that. And I'm, I'm very pleased that we did because I think it's going to yield us better results. And now based on the fact that there are four companies or, or we assume that there are going to be four awards here, I don't think that's a complete certainty yet here. I guess there there could be a company that doesn't get an award, even though they've been issued a solicitation. So, yeah, you're correct. Yeah. So just because you get a direct solicitation does not mean that you're going to get an award. So we're still going through the process. Um, but I think it's, we just need to make that very clear. Uh, just because you have a direct solicitation does not mean you're going to get a, a direct award. Sure. Um, but, but okay, so assuming we have multiple companies in play here, when it comes time to actually order services, if I'm, let's say, the Defense Logistics Agency, can I, can I say I would like to order X number of units of this particular type of Oracle service, or do I need to submit a more vague requirement that then goes into this disagonculator that tells me what I'm getting back? So, uh Using your example for, for DLA, DLA will partner with the JWCC PMO. They have a customer engagement team. Uh, they will review the requirements, uh, and then the uh, JWCC PMO customer engagement team will work very closely with DLA to make sure that they are tailoring the requirements in a manner that meets their mission need. And then that is what will go into the automated provisioning tool to be able to execute and compete that uh, task order. If I if I if I'm the CIO of one of these agencies though, and I know with certainty that this is the exact cloud service from this company that I want, will I ultimately be able to get that? I think it's premature for me to say that. Uh, I think that's the reason why we want to make sure that we have. Um, it's all about the requirements, so um, tailoring the requirements to be able to meet the mission's need is is critical, and that partnership with whomever the mission owner is working with the JWCC program office that will have the technical acumen to be able to help shepherd that through and then executing it through the provisioning tool is how I envision all of this taking place. The, the one piece that we haven't gotten to yet about JWCC, and I think one of the ways it differs from some of the contracts that are out there already, is the multiple classification domains that you're going to start offering here relatively quickly. Can, can you talk about what, what sorts of services at those at those different levels are going to be available and how soon you think you can get them going? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, aisle five, up to aisle five, that's what we call unclassified. We'll have a cross-domain solution for aisle six, which is uh, secret, cross-domain solution, uh, top secret, and then the tactical I should be able to, uh, to complement all that. And those cross-domain solutions are incredibly important because that is how you're going to be able to move data up and back down depending on where it needs to go and, and who needs access to it. Um, and so this is something that, and th is supporting underlying cybersecurity infrastructure to be able to support what I just said, because I obviously made that sound very easy. Um, but that's exactly what needs to take place. And right now that is what is missing from the department's ability to, uh, to do join all domain C2 and um, the vision that Secretary Hicks has with uh, the AI and data acceleration. That portability across domains, obviously super important. What about portability across providers? Is there going to be specific language in the requirements of these contracts that it's seamless between various CSPs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's the key, the, the portability uh, across and amongst and within, um, because we know that we're going to be, in it, and we already are, but we know that with what we're putting forward with JWCC, that we're going to be in a multi-cloud environment, and we still need to behave and, and, and work as a joint 
uh, unit um, as a joint workforce. And, be, and it shouldn't be uh, independent of where our data is in the cloud. That is just a mechanism for us to be able to safely, securely, and um, confidentially move our data to be able to execute the mission that we need to do. That that technology is obviously available, but it's not easy. Um, is the government yeah. going to be the integrator to pull those various CSP service offerings together? Are you going to rely on third-party integrators? Do you know yet? Uh, so we're uh, the the JWCC Program Management Office, which is the HAC, will have the responsibility of being the integrator for this and working very closely with the CSPs that uh, do receive the direct awards to be able to make that happen. And that was the vision that we had when it was JEDI, and at the time, the JEDI PMO, which was called the CCPO. Um, slightly finer point on that. It, it, is it going to be somewhat incumbent on the cloud service providers themselves to play, play nicely with each other, or is the government going to be building pipes? That's really my question. So I think we're still working through that. Um, so I don't have a very good answer for that, but I do understand the, the, the nuance that you just provided. That's something that we have to work through. I just don't have a very good answer right now. Danielle Metz, the Deputy DOD CIO for Information Enterprise, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, 
situations changed and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. And that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon. Um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own. But he would stop and he would focus on me. And he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters 
um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.